Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or whenever you are joining me and tuning in to hear about one of the greatest hobbies in the world. I am your host, Zachary Anderson, and this is your turn. The podcast where I talk about board games, game mechanics, and other nerdy culture things. For all of my returning listeners, welcome back. And to those of you tuning in for the first time, welcome and please enjoy the episode. In this episode, I will be stepping beyond my normal focus of board games and taking a look at the realm of video games. As this will be the first time I talk about video games, I want to give you some background on how video games have been a part of my life, and then I want to talk about a specific game that is near and dear to my heart, though it may not be for everyone. So once again, thank you for joining me. And let's get to our topics. I understand this is not the normal topic I discuss here on Your Turn, but as important as board games are to my life, video games have been a constant for nearly as long as I have been alive. Before I start talking about a specific game and my thoughts on it, I want to discuss my history with video games and touch on some key moments. The year was 1576, and the aliens from the planet Whizdoodle had just bestowed upon me the marvelous Sega Genesis. I was not sure what to do with the strange box or the spinning blue animal with red shoes, but I knew I was in for a fantastic journey. Oh, wait, we're talking about reality. My bad. The first console I ever had the joy of playing was the original NES, Nintendo Entertainment System. And I'm about 75% sure that I was between the ages of 5 and 7 when it adorned my family's living room television. We had two games, Super Mario Brothers, which had duck hunt and skeet shooting, and a game I have been referring to for the majority of my life as that crappy X-Men game. Though, I now know it as the Uncanny X-Men. I was never really good at any of these games, and I would always use the warp pipes in Mario, but was unable to defeat Bowser, and I actually don't think I ever actually made it to the final world, while in Duck Hunt, I would stand very close to the screen and fire as quickly as I could at that evil laughing dog. My brother Clurry and I still talk about how impossible the X-Men game was, and having watched videos on YouTube recently, I'm pretty sure our game was broken. Because baddies would never spawn, and we were forever trapped in a single room. You hear that, Clurry? It wasn't our fault we were terrible at the game. Playing games, either by myself or with my brother, I began to notice a sense of joy and exhilaration as I tried to hold down the B button to run while jumping what felt like miles from the top of a staircase of bricks onto a flagpole. Little did I know, this was just the beginning. As I got older and continued my adventure through the world of video games, I noticed that there was so much more out there beyond my couple games in the NES. There was the Sega Genesis, the Super Nintendo, the Game Boy and Game Boy Color, and eventually the dreamy PlayStation and Nintendo 64, and I wanted them all. Unfortunately, I could never afford them, but I did have friends 
who did have the systems, and I was able to spend time with them playing new and exciting games, from Super Mario Bros. to Mortal Kombat, Sonic and Knuckles to Final Fantasy. With new and updated graphics, my little mind was blown. How could there be so many options for games and worlds? And why am I not delving into every single one of them? As sad as I got about not being able to play all of the games, one year my parents bought my siblings and I a Nintendo Game Boy. And with this handheld console came a short hero in a green hat that would begin to shape what I looked for in games. And he did it without ever saying a word. Of course, I'm talking about The Legend of Zelda, specifically Link's Awakening. There are individuals who are not as big a fan of this game as I am, as it does not include key characters such as Ganon or Zelda, but running around the island fighting Borblins, Octoroks, and mini-bosses such as Hinox became my world and my passion. Hour after hour was sunk into that game, as I wanted to know more about the characters and the world as I was trying to wake up some fish. It was not until years later that I found out there were many more games in the Legend of Zelda series, none of which had anything to do with my beloved Link's Awakening, but I fell in love in the exact same way. I want to pause for just a moment to let you know I never actually beat Link's Awakening, and I have not played the majority of the Zelda games, but the franchise remains at the top of my video game series list. The Triforce and the balance of power, wisdom, and courage is such a meaningful piece of my life and my philosophy, I have it tattooed on my left shoulder. I will explore my love for this series more on a later date, but let's move on. Even though I used to play games with friends and my brother, these games were always either competitive or each player would take turns controlling the individuals on the screen, a key example being Super Mario Bros., where I would play as Mario until I died, and then my brother would play through as Luigi until he died, which seemed to never happen. Around the age of 11 or 12, I came into the possession of an original PlayStation and a plethora of games. One of these games was called Fighting Force, a side-scrolling beat-em-up in which players fought to thwart the plans of some evil bald dude. I'm pretty sure he was bald. I know he was evil, that's for sure. I started off playing this game by myself, but quickly learned that playing with my brother was not only possible, but also a lot easier. In the game, players got to pick from a roster of four characters. Two well-rounded heroes, one fast and weak hero, and one massive mountain of a character. And of course, I went with the largest person, Ben Smasher Jackson. Clary played as some well-rounded dude named Hawk Mason. Together, we played through this game religiously, constantly fighting wave after wave of bad guy from the plaza to the park, and finally to the flying airship where we fought weird purple super clone baddies. It was weird. But there was one other game I played that grew my love for cooperative games, and this was the incredible JRPG Tales of Symphonia. The first time playing through the game was with my friend John, and before Tales, I was unaware that video games could tell such heartfelt and impactful stories. 
normally it was just some people wanting to kill some other people for stealing their loved ones or being angry and bald. Playing through the 60 plus hour campaign resulted in laughter, tears, frustration, and so much confusion as the game tossed twists and turns at the players. Yet the ability to fight side by side with my friend and experience the story together generated a shared experience I had never had. No matter how many times people said I would feel this connection to others through sports. Fast forward to the end of my teenage years. After years of wear and tear, the NES somehow vanished, the Game Boy died and was replaced with a more advanced version, and my gaming was relegated to the PlayStation and the GameCube. But it was time for a new console. Or at least new to me. I purchased the legendary PlayStation 2 when it was on sale. And my collection of games began to grow. Primarily buying single-player games, my library began to include things such as Siphon Filter, Omega Strain, Kingdom Hearts, Tie the Tasmanian Tiger, Bully, and so many more. At the height of my collecting, which really wasn't collecting, it was just buying and planning to play, I owned somewhere between 50 and 70 games for the PS2. And in the number of years I owned them, I doubt I even played half of them. I became afraid of missing out on experiences within the gaming community, so I kept buying. I had to have them all, even when I had more than enough. Gaming and buying games had become a distraction within my life. I saw games as a commodity to own, but nothing more. A far fall from seeing them as a place of joy and pleasure. Once again, it took a game with a silent protagonist, this time in a world of darkness and giants, to stir me from this pessimistic point of view, which is odd, because the game was Shadow of the Colossus. From the very opening moments, and the sweeping aerial shots of the landscapes, I was hooked. English voices were not needed. Subtitles transported me into this world of dark and light. I vaguely remember the story, how the wanderer wanted to resurrect his lost love, but in order to do so, he had to kill 13 colossi, appeasing some evil dark god who had power over life or something. Moving on. What has stuck with me these many years since playing the game is the gorgeous artwork and design of the characters, the landscapes, the colossi, the soundtrack. All of these things worked in unison to immerse the player and help them feel like the world was alive. From this point onward, I no longer looked at games as just something to waste time, but instead, they were works of art that could provoke a wide range of emotions. From crying as the hero is gunned down after proving he was no longer the evil bandit all those years ago, to rage as your compatriot for 30 some odd hours betrays you and you're left out to dry against the villainous corporation. Movies, books, music, these are all forms of art and do a marvelous job creating a story and generating feelings in the audience. But video games force the player to be an active member in their story and therefore take part in the creation of this art. So we have traveled from the old school gaming through my years as a pseudo-collector 
and are almost to the end. Only one more hurdle to vault before we get to where I am at now in the hobby. I must speak quickly about my attempt to get into competitive gaming. I mentioned earlier that I used to play a lot of games when hanging out with friends, and a few of my friends, specifically David, loved to play first-person shooter games, such as Call of Duty and Overwatch, and would constantly recommend I give these games a try. After all, they had fun, so why wouldn't I? And because I try to be a good friend, and because gaming with friends is better than gaming solo, I gave online gaming a try. I played Call of Duty, Battleborn, Overwatch, Apex Legends, and so many more, and my emotional fortitude could not stand up to the constant anger and ridicule from those I played with. I attempted the mobile game Auto Chess, which was enjoyable for a time, But unlike the other games whose toxic communities made me leave, with Auto Chess it was the tremendous meta-knowledge needed in order to succeed. One had to learn which groups were best with each patch, how to balance a squad, when to trash someone in order to pick up a new pawn, following the online community to understand who was overpowered and how to make the top tier team, while being a middle school and high school teacher. I decided to throw in the towel. I have thought about trying these types of games for a second time, but I think back to all the unnecessary stress they created in my life and happily say, pass. And now we get to present day. I still play games quite often, and I will talk to you about many, many, many of those games, but I found my home in role-playing games. Games where I get to create a character, and take that character through adventures and stories and see the world through their perspective, whether it's for good or bad. I also particularly love co-op games, playing with my brothers, playing with my friends, but all of us working together towards a common goal. And this has made me so much happier within the hobby. Having these shared stories and shared experiences with the people that I care about has made me come back to games time and time again. I would now like to talk about a single game, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, or Re-Reckoning. This game was published by 38 Studios, Electronic Arts, and Re-Reckoning was done by THQ Nordic. It was developed by 38 Studios, Big Huge Games, and Reckoning by Kaiko. This game was originally published in 2012 with a remaster in 2020. It plays single player, and the genre is role-playing game and hack and slash. A very, very, very brief overview. Kingdoms of Amalur is set in a world that is populated with numerous races, including elves and humans. Essentially, elves die and are reborn, humans die, stay dead. A dark elf named Gadflow wishes to change the world and is marching across the map, killing all who stand in his way. You are suddenly reborn and must seek out answers after the apparatus that brought you back is destroyed. 
you meet numerous factions and travel across countless lands, fighting a plethora of vile creatures and annoying little tree beasts. I'll get to them later. During your adventure, you gain levels to unlock new abilities that fall into three categories. Might, Finesse, and Sorcery. You can gain access to an abundance of weapons, armors, potions, and skills. Basically, whatever kind of hero you want to play, you can create. So come ye warriors, grab your weapons and help us put the world right. Throw a wrench into the wicked plans of the evil Gadflow and reach your destiny. Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning is not the first game to give you options for races when it comes to character creation. And though it is not as robust and diverse as the Elder Scrolls series, the four available races, two different humans and two different elves, provides players with a solid jumping off point for what kind of character they want to play throughout the rest of the game. Each race starts off with four skill points spread across three of the available skills in the game. And knowing that one race starts off with dispelling and alchemy may help players decide they want to be a magic user, as opposed to the race that grants bonus to blacksmithing and persuasion, as they create a smooth-talking brute who can craft any tool they may need as they traverse the land. Race is not where the game ends with customization. As unlike other games, which force a player to pick a class, with each level, players are granted a number of skill points to spend on increasing any number of the nine skills available, so you can become the master blacksmith, or the character who can lockpick their way through any chest or door. The options are left to the player. There are also three ability trees, Might, Finesse, and Sorcery, which players are also given free reign over thereby allowing players to not only take points and abilities that allow them to teleport around the map, but they also can grow their proficiency in greatswords or hammers to deal immense damage. One of my personal favorites is placing points in the Might Harpoon skill, which allows you to essentially be Scorpion from Mortal Kombat, where I can drag an enemy closer to me and then smash them with my cool double-sided daggers called Fayblades. All of this character customization leads to the destiny system. Within the fiction of Kingdoms of Amalur, every character has a destiny, some predetermined path to follow, and there is no way to alter your fate once the journey has begun. But something strange happened with your character that allows you to change what you were meant to do. I would love to say this creates an elaborate morality system where you can end up being the god king over the realm, but sadly this is not where these destinies lead. As the player puts points into the three ability trees, they gain access in a spectrum of destinies, which range from solely devoted to one ability, such as the pure finesse, which would make the player into a knight blade, or perhaps dabbling in finesse and sorcery making you into a shadow caster. Or even if you place points into each ability equally, which makes you the universalist. Each destiny gives bonuses that are proportional to the points in the abilities, as well as what their abilities do. This is not game breaking, but it does add a bit more to the flavor and overall appeal of the game. As for me, I am going finesse and might, making myself into an immense 
damage-dealing blade master with my swords and daggers. So you've made your character. Time to outfit them. And guess what? There are a bunch of options for this as well. There are nine weapons within the game, from great swords and hammers to bows and daggers. And let us not forget our magic users, who get access to staffs and chakrams, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. As loot and equipment gets better throughout the game, weapons will start requiring a specific number of points put into each of the three abilities. But because you have complete control over these skills, you can easily situate your points to allow yourself to use any combination of weapons. When I play, I tend to use a weapon that is great at long range, so the bow. Great choice. But I also have something to deal with those pesky bandits who get a little too close, such as a powerful staff that can create massive waves of fire or ice, or perhaps the hammer to smash imps to bits. There's also armor, and each class has a specific material they like their armor made out of. Those who focus on might prefer armors of metal. Those who prefer finesse use leather. And finally, the sorcerers get to use robes because it gives a full range of motion, but let's be honest, they just are way more comfy. But again, all of these armors and all these weapons can be mixed and matched however you want. There is no right or wrong choice. Weapons and armor are not the only things that players are able to create. Throughout the many regions players will journey, there are plants, ores, and essences to collect. These can be combined to create potions and poisons with many different effects and bonuses. Just do not get the nasty green poison mixed with the yummy red health potion. Your day will not end well. Players can also craft runes and gems to slot into their armors and weapons, which also give bonuses, such as greater damage, elemental damage, and extra armor. Or you can sell all your crafted items to make a bunch of money. But I do actually recommend anything you make you use. Don't be like me and just hoard everything. Because you will get to the end of the game and realize that you have hundreds of unused health and mana potions. As well as dozens of boost potions that would have made those last three boss fights a little bit easier. What can I say? I like my stuff. I want to talk very briefly about the overall story and plot of the game. I'd already mentioned that something happens to your character at the very beginning of the game that causes you to have no destiny, thereby being a wild card in the world. Throughout the game, there are new characters to meet and a decent story to flesh out as you traverse a rather large world. Without giving away any spoilers, I merely want to say the overall story is kind of blah. It's not bad. It just does not feel like anything overly original or extravagant. I enjoyed the story, but there were no huge twists and turns in the narrative to surprise me. This can be difficult to do in an action-adventure RPG, but the story felt extremely linear, and I was just running from point A to point B because I was told to do so, not because I felt motivated. And yet the side quests in the game, and yes, it has side quests, tended to create a much more interesting story. There are a number of factions throughout the game, and each one has its own tales to tell, and characters to get to know. And these are far more fleshed out 
than the bland story of run and kill the bad guy because he is bad. There's one group of elves called the House of Ballads that give the players missions to complete and each one tells the story of one of their members and the daring deeds they faced. From fighting a rogue mountain troll to facing off a frustrating thresh as it dispatched the original hero, I found myself caring a lot more about the stories being told by the Warsworn, a group of mercenaries with lovely blue armor and huge weapons, rather than the story being told by the main characters. Luckily for me, the side quests actually made up most of my playtimes. So by the time I finished the main story, which I saved for the absolutely last thing, I had my fill of wondrous stories and adventures. Games with massive worlds and maps require fast movement. Whether it is a horse, a car, a jet, a train, the players need a fast and easy way to get from one place to another, especially if they have not found all the available locations yet. And unfortunately, this is non-existent in Kingdoms of Amalur. There's no horse to jump on or a carriage to ride. Players must run everywhere. And this is time-consuming. Many missions are simply go check something out or kill this guy and then return to get the reward. And normally I would not have a problem with this. But in Kingdoms, it takes far longer than it needs to. Because first, you have to run around and find the target. Do whatever you need to do and then run all the way back. Now, you can fast travel with the map, but I would have preferred the ability to grab an animal mount and traverse the beautiful scenery and not look at a boring loading screen. The world of Kingdoms of Amalur is filled with characters, enemies, and vistas that will take your breath away. It could have been easy for the designers to create another dark and drab world, lacking any real life or color, and call it good. But unlike other overly dark fantasy games, Kingdoms is filled with color, light, and beauty. From the lush fields of Arathel to the spider-infested webwood, the vibrant red sands and stones of Dietri to the marshes of Cluricon, the world comes alive and wows the player. Even the enemies are colored in a way that makes them pop on the screen. I mentioned an annoying enemy called a Thresh, a frustrating tree beast, yet even when fighting a flippin' tree that won't stop juggling me, I am taken aback by the bright purple highlights of its weaponry. Just before I am knocked to the ground for the 19th time. Ugh, must attack more. The light radiating off the sprites tells you what element to expect as they twirl to unleash their attack. While the dripping green venom from the fangs of the spiders alerts you to make sure you are not hit. Nearly every aspect of this game is filled with an array of colors that should not go without being seen. As I am sure many of you are aware, video games are often compared to one another. And while discussing games, it is common to hear phrases such as, Oh, that game is like blank, but with this change. Or, this game uses the same mechanic as blank, but I think the other game did it better. I know I do this all the time, and it has even bled into my discussion of board games and movies. 
There is a time and place for this kind of discussion, but it is also important to remember that each game is its own entity and should be able to stand for judgment on its own merits. When Kingdoms was first released, I heard among players that it reminded them of a mix of World of Warcraft in that it was extremely colorful, but it was also similar to Elder Scrolls Skyrim, as you have full control over your character's customization. I am not denying these games do share some similarities, but this does not mean Kingdoms is a subpar game, and I would actually argue this creates a unique experience. I have played Skyrim for a number of hours, nowhere near as many as some of my friends, and though I enjoyed the game, I found myself feeling like I was on repeat as I journeyed into yet another dark and gloomy dungeon or cave. It got kind of boring seeing the same palette on repeat, but in Kingdoms, each dungeon, hovel, cave has an array of colors and monsters to face off against. Each sub-area has a different name to give some sort of hint as to what is to come before you find traps, flooded tunnels, and puzzles that require solving, while still being different from one another. So, though you may want to say, but Zack, it still sounds a lot like Skyrim, I will stand by my statement that you should try it before you throw it to the side. I'm going to get to the available DLC in a moment, but I want to mention that this game was supposed to pave the way for an MMO, a massive multiplayer online game. The story told within the game was setting the stage to explain why characters controlled by players were able to come back to life after death. And personally, this had me hooked. Normally, games in the MMO genre give a quick sentence or two as to why death is temporary. But now we were given a fully fleshed out story, even if it tended to linger and drag on by the end. Sadly, the company that originally made the game, 38 Studios, shut its doors in 2019 after countless legal battles and money troubles. The game was remastered and re-released in 2020 as Re-Reckoning, but the once-talked-about sequel, Project Copernicus, will never see the light of day and will live on only in our memories. As I promised, I want to mention the two DLC that originally came out for Kingdoms. The Legend of Dead Kel and Teeth of Naros. Each one provides the players with new lands to explore, new characters to meet, new foes to fight or run from, and short tales to explore. Each will take a few hours to play through, but in a game that offers players fantasy worlds to explore, these packs of content are greatly appreciated. Plus, in The Legend of Dead Kel, you get a massive house to upgrade and outfit. Always a fun thing to do. If you enjoy massive worlds with a lot to do in them, I would recommend you check out Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, or Re-Reckoning. But, as mentioned, be wary that the main story is a bit lackluster, and there is so much running, so you better make sure you got on some comfy shoes. So here we are. Another end to another episode. Video games provide an escape from reality and give us opportunities to live out incredible fantasies that are normally impossible in this fun, real world we live in. They have had an insurmountable impact on my life, and led me to friends 
and connections I never thought I would form. There is so much more to discuss about this incredible hobby, and I want to thank you for listening as I step away from board games and introduce something I hope to dive more into as the episodes continue. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to like this episode and listen to others that I've posted. Share the joy of your turn with friends and family as well. You can also check out pictures and updates I post over on my Instagram at z.a.yourturn. Feel free to drop me a line or a comment and let me know what games you have been playing or are interested in hearing about. It has been a pleasure talking about my experiences and this wonderful game with you. And I will be back in a few weeks with another episode. As always, I've been your host, Zachary Anderson, and this has been your turn. And now it is your turn to play some games, have some fun. Be safe. Have a good one, y'all.